Today I'm going to start a series that I will preach through the month of December entitled, He Came, He Came. And as I was thinking about what I would do this year, obviously we talk about the coming of Jesus that first time and now we often talk about his second coming as well. But I decided to look at the text and look at places and passages where it talks about the specific reasons for his coming, the specific reasons why he came. There are a multitude of them, and so I'm picking a few, and today will be probably a little uh, unusual, if I could say that, for a Christmas series. If you just hold on that slide, I'm going to go ahead and ask you to be seated and I will come back to my text in just uh, a little bit today. But there is a lot of global unrest in our world. There are wars and rumors of wars and the Bible speaks of the fact that there would be in the last times wars and rumors of wars. Jesus is the one himself who said that in the last days there would be an increase of war and an increase of uh, difficulty and an increase of dissension in the world. And so it's no shock that we have an increase of war going on. In 2022, when Russia invaded Ukraine, and regardless of what you think about that or how you think that should have gone down or what you think that should look like and who's in the right and who's in the wrong. If you're in those nations, then there is a significant concern about safety and a significant concern about uh, peace in your land. In fact, because of what's going on there, version it's a Bible app. I use it on a daily basis. I do the church uh, Bible reading plan, and I do an additional Bible reading plan. And, and the version of the uh, Bible app is a great way to do that. You can read it. It'll track your reading. You can listen to it in a, in a multitude of different versions from the NLT to the NASB to ESV to any, anything you don't even understand what those letters mean. They have it. And they also have it in an abundance of languages other than in English. And so during... 2022, as Russia invaded Ukraine, the Ukrainian language engagement in that particular Bible app went up significantly. In Poland, the Ukrainian language uh, versions of the Bible, the increase was 241% as, as Ukrainians living in Poland we're looking at what the Bible had to say about global peace and what the Bible had to say about their safety. And in Germany, it went up by 733%. That when difficulty came, people turned to the Bible in a significant way uh, more than whenever things are going well. And in fact, overall in the Uversion Bible app, the Ukrainian language use went up by 55%. And... That, well, that was actually just in the nation of Ukraine, 55% increase, and then overall the Ukrainian language in, increased by 76%. The verse that 
was most often looked up, the, the, the verse that was most often looked to during this time was Isaiah 41.10, which says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. People are looking for peace. People are desiring peace. People are wanting there to be peace. And whether it's global peace or whether it's something else, uh, whether it's peace in relationships or peace on the job or peace in, in politics or peace among the various ethnic groups and racial uh, situations, people are looking for peace. People want peace. But the question is, is peace between people the goal that we should be striving for right now? This is, of course, the Christmas season. For some, it begins earlier than others, but for most, it's after Thanksgiving or and usually that Black Friday kind of deal, and then Christmas is in full swing for them. For my daughter, if it was up to her, she would listen to Christmas music beginning in July every year. I, I told her that that's not acceptable. I don't want to hear Christmas music in July because by the time we get to September, I'm done with it. So she's pushing it back a little bit, and Whenever we were in St. Louis and I would take her to school every day, I told her she had to at least wait to October 1st before she could listen to Christmas music in the car. I don't care what she does any other time as long as she's got her earbuds in, but I, I don't want to start Christmas too early. But, but now for everybody, we are in the Christmas season, and during the Christmas season, we talk about peace a lot. We sing of peace. We pray for peace. There are songs written that the primary thing that they want for Christmas is peace, that people are looking for that. But in our desire for peace, it is an imperative that we keep our eyes upon Jesus. Let me say that again. In our desire for peace, it is an imperative that we keep our eyes on Jesus. There is a push outside of Christianity for peace. And in fact, if you look at the Bible and you look at what the Bible says about the last days, it is going to be a cry for peace that will usher in the Antichrist. That cry for peace is not going to usher in Jesus Christ, but it's going to usher in the Antichrist. And his, that seven-year period called, that many call the tribulation is going to be ushered in by a peace agreement, a desire for peace. And in fact, Daniel and Daniel 8.25 would say this, that by peace the Antichrist will destroy many. That he will use peace as a weapon and he will use peace as a tool to get people to follow him and therefore be deceived and miss out on a relationship with Jesus Christ. Peace is not really our goal. But if we look at what did Jesus say about peace, and we're going to look at that in just a moment, and, and did he come the first time to, pre, to bring peace, and will he come again to bring peace? Our text today, Matthew chapter 10, the context of this passage is that Jesus has sent out, and he's in process actually of sending out the twelve to cities around Israel, the first 15 verses, he's telling them what he wants them to do as he's going to send them out to share the good news and share the gospel with the surrounding cities. But he quickly follows that command to send them out with an, an understanding and a warning that persecution would come. 
that not only are you going to be going out, but that people are not going to be happy with you sharing the gospel, and people are not going to be happy with what you're telling them, and they're going to push back, and he says, persecution will come. And he, and he flips from this idea and this talk of persecution to saying, hey, a disciple is not above his master. He says, that basically, if they're persecuting me, they're going to persecute you. You're no better off. You're... But he then goes on to say, do not fear the people who persecute you. Do not fear what they can do. Don't fear what they can do to the body because that's not really important. Fear the one who can destroy your soul in hell is what he says. But then he follows that up with another promise and another wonderful concept and that is this that we are more valuable than the sparrows of the field and if he takes care of them he will surely take care of us he says if you confess me before men i will confess you before my father in heaven but if you do not confess me before men i will not confess you before my father and so that's the backdrop and the setting of what he says go out and preach the gospel persecution will come and then he gets to this the verse of the passage that I'm going to preach from today. Verse 34 of Matthew 10. He says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. For just a little while, I want to preach from this title, he came with a sword. He came with a sword. The question, though, is what does this sword mean? What does it represent? I've already told you that peace is not the goal, and he, Jesus here specifically says, I didn't come to bring peace. Don't think that I'm here to bring peace. I'm not here to bring peace, but I came with a sword. So what does that mean? Typically, a sword represents war and division and dissension. A sword will represent conflict. It is a, a euphemism or another way of saying when he come, somebody comes with the sword that they're coming to make war and they're going to cause conflict. They're not coming to just bring everybody together. And he says that specifically. I didn't come to bring them together. I came to separate people. You may be saying, well, that doesn't sound like something positive. That doesn't sound like what we would expect Jesus to do. Surely he is coming to bring peace. I will tell you he is coming to bring peace, but he's going to do that in the future when he comes again. When he sets up his rule on this earth, he will have peace. We will have a thousand-year millennial reign where there will be peace on earth. But his disciples and, and all of those in Israel at the time and, and Judea, they are expecting the Messiah to come with a sword. They're expecting him to come on a horse and bring a sword and he is going to conquer 
the Romans and drive the Romans out of their land, and he is going to then set up his kingdom right then. But Jesus says, I didn't come to do that. There is an element in where he is bringing peace, but that's between, bring, he's bringing peace between us as individuals and him as Savior. There is some conflicting information, seemingly, that Jesus, when he tells his disciples, he tells them to go get a sword and bring a sword with them. And they only have two among them. They're, they're fishermen. They're not warriors. Peter has one of those swords and in the Garden of Gethsemane when Judas betrays Jesus. He comes up and gives Jesus a kiss on the cheek, identifying Jesus as the, the one that the soldier should, should take. The soldiers and the servants of the temple guards, they, they surround Jesus, and Peter pulls out the sword, and he, he, he's, he's a fisherman. He doesn't know what he's doing. He, he strikes down. He cuts off the ear of Malchus, and we've talked about that before. They didn't understand, and Jesus says, put away the sword. It's not about the sword. But here, he says, I came to bring a sword. What I would tell you is this, is that what Jesus is really saying is this. I've come not just to bring people together so that they will all get along, but I've come to divide those into two different camps, those who follow me completely and those who don't. I've come to bring division because I, I want to, to set aside those who are going to be fully my disciples and those who are just going through the motions or those who just reject me overall. I've come not to bring people together and say, oh, well, let's just all get along. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter how you believe in Jesus. It doesn't matter whether your politics or this. Just, let's just all get along. He said it's not about getting along with one another, but it's about getting along with me. And I would tell you that our relationship with Jesus is more important than anything. And because of that, we must value him above everything. Our relationship with Jesus is more important than anything. So we must value him above everything. So I'm going to walk through three different areas of our life where Jesus must be the most important. Two of the three are taken from the text. One is implied in the text. The first is this. We must value Jesus over country. I love the United States of America. It's not the nation that it used to be. It is quickly, if not already, on the side of being a non-Christian nation. And if you just look at the the sheer number of people who profess to be Christians, we're still considered to be a Christian nation. If you do surveys, it would tell you that the majority of people who live here would say that they are Christians, but the reality is we have dumbed down what it means to be a Christian. That no longer does a Christian mean that you are a follower of Jesus, but being a Christian just means that you believe that Jesus existed. You may not follow him, you may not be having any, have any kind of relationship with him, but you just say that you're a Christian. And I, I would put the number much lower of people here in the United States who would have any semblance of really following Jesus well below 50%, but... 
surveys, the way they're written, still would say that we are a Christian nation, but we are quickly on the way out. I love, I love the United States of America, and I trust that you do too. Many of you that are here today, you were not born here, but you came here for a better life. But regardless of whether you were born here or you came for a better life or because your parents brought you or whatever that happens to look like, ultimately our salvation and our value should not be in our nation over Jesus, but it should be Jesus over our nation. That when you look to government and when you look to country to, to be the salvation and to fix all the problems in the world or to fix all of your problems, you're putting Jesus in the wrong place. When, when you're putting country above Jesus, you've got your priorities wrong, but we're to put Jesus over country. And unfortunately, part of what has happened because the United States was a Christian nation is that people have started equating the United States with being God's chosen people. I've heard this for the last few decades when people would refer to the United States, it's like the United States is God's chosen people. No, God has some chosen people in the United States, but we are not God's chosen people because this is the U.S. And my relationship must be with Jesus and not worrying about politics and all of the things going on because Jesus is most important. And when we start looking at our nation and we start following uh, our government officials, they are on a track to lead us into a one world government, a global government, which the Bible says will be ruled by the Antichrist. And so our, our goal and our salvation can't be to look to the U.S. It's got to be to look to Jesus Christ. Secondly, we must value Jesus over family. In this text, Jesus does some unique things. A man's enemies will be in his own house. That doesn't sound like sign me up for that. Daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Kids against parents. Doesn't sound like Christmas. Doesn't sound like peace on earth doesn't sound like what I would expect or you would expect Jesus to do. But what he is saying here is this. is that you have to value him more than anybody else. That you have to value Jesus and your relationship with him more than your family and more than your mom and more than your, your dad and, and more than your siblings or more than your grandparents, that he has to be most important. And he says, if you love those people more than me, you are not worthy of me. But doesn't he want us to just get along? Getting along is good, getting along is great, but not at the expense of putting people over Jesus. They're putting relationship with people over your relationship with Jesus. He would ask Peter at the end of the Gospel of John, Peter, lovest thou me more than these? Do you love me, Peter, more than you love your friends and your fellow disciples? He would ask Peter that three times, and he would use two different words for love as he asked him that question, and 
Peter was grieved and Peter was upset. But Peter never forgot that it's more important to love Jesus than it is to love anybody else. It's more important to love Jesus than it is to love your spouse. And it's not just because your spouse may let you down, but it's because Jesus has to be first in our lives. And he has to have the first and the priority in our life. He has to be number one. Adam clear that he loved Eve more than he loved God. That when Adam eats the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that Eve gives him, he's disregarding the command that God had given him. He says, it doesn't really matter, but I'm going to do what Eve wants. And not only did it cost Adam and Eve their place in the garden, but because of that, you and I are born sinners because of that, everybody who's ever been born except for Jesus Christ needs a Savior. And they need redemption from their sin. It has to be that I am serving Jesus no matter what. No matter who doesn't. No matter who doesn't serve Jesus, I am serving Jesus. That I'm going to do what is right no matter what it costs. I'm going to church no matter what it costs. And no matter who cares or who wants me to do something else. I have a, a man that I've been working with. He was baptized at our launch service, received the Holy Ghost in the baptistry. I love him. I want to see him excel in the kingdom. Somewhat faithful until COVID came about. And since March of 2020, he's been one time. And the reality is, and, and he may watch, he may be watching now and he may watch it later. I'll see him, I see him every week and do a Bible study with him. But at the end of the day, there's one reason he's not here. That he values his family more than he values Jesus. I had a conversation with him one time and I... And I I referenced that verse that I referenced earlier that's just before our text where Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father, but if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before. We've had conversations where he's like, well, how do I bring this up? How do I have these conversations? And at the end of the day, he values what his spouse thinks more than he values his relationship with Jesus. So the one time he came since March of 2020 was when his wife was out of town. What Jesus says, I didn't come to just bring peace. 
It's not about getting along. It's not about keeping your spouse happy. It's not about keeping the family happy. It's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that it has to be of most importance. That the value of Jesus has to be above everything. So I'm going to read my Bible no matter what. And I'm going to pray no matter what. And I'm going to go to church no matter what. I'm going to give no matter what. That I'm going to put God first. And this includes all the things of the kingdom. It's not just saying I put God first and then you don't serve him and you don't follow him and you don't do spiritual disciplines. You don't show up for church or get involved, but all of that is what encompasses putting God first and then his family second and everything else third. We must value Jesus over family. Jesus uses strong language here when he says, if you love your family more than me, you can't be, you're not worthy of me. In another place in the Gospels, he would say, you've got to hate your family. And ultimately what he's really saying, he's not saying he's using hyperbole. Jesus is the, a master storyteller and a master communicator, and so he's using hyperbole. And he doesn't really want you to hate your family. You should love your family. But what he's saying is this. He said, you have to love me so much that your feelings toward them are almost like hate. That's how far apart it has to be. That love for him must be greater than anything else. Thirdly, we must value Jesus over our life. He starts this piece of the paragraph with, Take up your cross and follow me. Verse 38, you can put it on the screen, but verse 38, he's, he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. The cross is an instrument of death. It's why people would say, Paul would write, it is an offense. The cross is an offense. It's an instrument of death. We go around and you, you see this. Church steeples, you see various places people wear them with necklaces and various things. But while the cross is a symbol of our salvation, for everybody else, it's it was a symbol of death. Capital punishment happened on the cross. They killed the worst prisoners on the cross. They put the people who were the worst criminals, they put them on the cross. It is an instrument of death. It was an instrument of suffering. It wasn't a quick, let's just put them to death and be done with it. It wasn't like lethal injection, which we do today, and they just kind of drift off. No, it was a torture process. And Jesus says, if you don't take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me. That word take up, it is a present active indicative. What that means, you've probably heard this, here he's not saying, he's not making the imperative because he's saying if you don't do this. But it's a present verb in Greek and it's an active verb in Greek and what that means is you have to continually take up your cross. 
that it is not a one-time, I, I went to an altar and I repented, and that's the end of the story. But it has to be an ongoing process of repenting and dying daily unto the Lord. And not my will, but thine be done. Lord, not what I want to do, but what you want me to do. It is an ongoing process. But when we look at the cross and we look at this language, it's real easy to think that what he's talking about here when he says, take up your life or cross and follow me. And if you don't, the next verse, he who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. When we look at those two things back to back, it's real easy to think that life here, he's just talking about our physical well-being. But the word here, life, is not the Greek zoe, but it is the Greek word suke. Look at your neighbor and make sure you're listening and tell him it's suke. The word suke is where we get our word psyche from. And what it really means is this. It is the word that the Bible uses for the human soul. The soul being made up of that mind, will, and emotions that, that what we think and what we feel and, and what we decide to do, our will and our emotions, it's, it's that process of not just our physical fleshly body and our life that's in, in our flesh, but it is what really is going on up here in our head. And what he says is this. If you go and find yourself, you'll lose it. But you lose yourself, you'll find it. We live in a, in a culture right now that would tell you, go and search for yourself and go out and find what makes you happy and go and find what makes you tick. Jesus said, if you do that, you're going to really lose your life. It's not about finding ourselves and finding what makes us tick, but it's about submitting ourselves to Jesus Christ. It's about submitting our mind, our will, and emotions to Jesus and putting him first in our lives. And what that means in a practical sense is this, is that we make Jesus the Lord of our schedules, and we make Jesus the Lord of our money, and we make Jesus the Lord of our possessions, and we make Jesus the Lord of our plans, and we make Jesus the Lord of our jobs, and we make Jesus the Lord of our relationships. That he has to be first in everything, and that all of those things in every area of life are submitted to our relationship with Jesus. Jesus must be more important than everything in your life. It's easy for me to stand here and say that. Sometimes it's harder to live that. It's easy to say Jesus is the most important. The everyday process of life and of living and of just going about our day will tell us really whether we value him more than anything. It's easy to go through our day. I've been in full-time ministry since 1998, but it's easy to go through a day and be busy about the things of the kingdom and not 
spend time with Jesus. To realize it's bedtime and I haven't spent time in prayer. That I haven't read my Bible. It's easy to do those things. And that's for somebody who is full time doing the work of the kingdom. It's easy to do that. I realize that it's much more difficult when you're working a full-time job or you're working two jobs and you're balancing a whole lot of stuff. And it's easy to miss out on spending time with Jesus. So it's easy to say, he's first in my life, but it becomes harder to live that out. But it's not, a ju- it's not just a matter of whether or not you are praying and reading your Bible, but how we live our lives is important. That what we do in between our prayer time is important. What we don't do in between our prayer time is important. That living for Jesus and valuing valuing Him above everything isn't just that I got 15 or 20 or 30 or an hour in of daily devotions, but that everything I do throughout my day brings honor and glory to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So come to a close, we must value Jesus over country. We must value Jesus over family. And we must value Jesus over our life. Loving Jesus starts with Turning to him for salvation. It's the first thing that we need to do when we, if we're going to make Jesus the most important thing in our life is we have to be saved. That salvation is the most important part of the process. It's what starts us on the journey. It is no coincidence that the Bible refers to salvation as being born again and we call that a new birth it's just like a baby who's born that's just the beginning of a process that's just the beginning of a life that is to be lived So when we're born again and we experience that new birth, it's the beginning of the process. You'll never see a tombstone that has a dash and an end date without a beginning date. That beginning date is not the date ten months after they're born, but that beginning date is when they are born and they come into the world. The end date is the date in which they left this life. The most important piece of that is the dash in between. What did we do with the dash in between? But I only bring that up not to emphasize what we do in between those two days, but to 
to illustrate this is that there has to be a birthday. You'll see people, they will know, everybody knows they're going to die unless the rapture takes place, so they'll have tombstones made and headstones made, and it'll have their birth date, and it'll have a dash, and they're just waiting for the death so that they can put that date on the end. But you never find a tombstone that has dates that doesn't have the birth. And so what I would tell you is this, you can't live for God and make him the most important thing in your life without having a date in the beginning that says this is when I was born again. This is when I experienced a new birth. So my natural birth date, April 11, 1972, I don't know when that end date will come. I think it'll probably it may never come because Jesus' return, I believe, is that soon. But the most important date is not April the 11th, 1972, but it's November the 12th, 1983. The date I was filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. And eight days later, baptized in the name of Jesus. And it doesn't matter what I knew about Jesus before that or what I thought about Jesus before that or how I lived before that. Without that date, none of it matters. So living for Jesus and loving Jesus starts with turning to Him for salvation and experiencing a new birth. And that new birth happens when we repent of our sins. We're baptized in the name of Jesus in water. And we're filled with the gift of the Holy Spirit, evidence and speaking in other tongues. Let me close with this. I've heard this all of my life. People would say living for Jesus easy is hard. But living for Jesus hard is easy. And what that really means is this, is if living for Jesus is just one of the many things that I do, it's going to be hard to live for Jesus. When living for Jesus is just one of the areas of your life, it's one of the boxes in the waffle, it's going to be real hard to do it because there's peer pressure. And there's culture and everything around us and everyone around us is pushing us to be anything but what God wants us to be. But when we live for him hard, when we make him the most important thing in our life and when we, we emphasize that and we live for that, it becomes easy. I don't have to wonder and decide if I'm going to follow Jesus. I've already made that decision, and no matter what comes, just what I'm doing. And no matter what situation or circumstance comes, that decision's already been made. That I'm going to do the things that emphasize 
a growing relationship with Jesus, I'm going to pray and I'm going to read my Bible and I'm going to fast and I'm going to come to church and I'm going to give and I'm going to be involved in the kingdom. Whether I was pastor or not, wherever I would be, I would be involved because it's what you do as part of the kingdom. You get involved and you use your gifts, your talents for the Lord. But when he's not first, you have to decide, what am I doing today? Am I going to church today? Am I giving this week? Am I going to pray today? Am I going to tell somebody about Jesus today? So I read something this week. That preachers can be guilty of talking about what they want from people and not about what they want for people. So I put this in my notes. What's in it for you? Valuing Jesus above everything, what's in it for you? The answer to that question is really simple from this text. It is the assurance of an eternity with Jesus. I want an eternity with Jesus for you. There are a lot of things that I think you can do and we should all do. But why should we put him first? If for no other reason, that is the only way that we'll have an assurance of an eternity with Jesus Christ is when we have made him first in our lives. He didn't come to make us all get along. But he came to separate and to divide those who would serve him fully from everybody else. And you can make all kinds of classifications and go, well, there. But what I would tell you, there's really only two kinds of people, those who serve him completely and value him above everything and everybody else. It's either all or nothing with Jesus. He's not a halfway God. He doesn't do anything halfway, and he doesn't call us to be halfway. It's all or nothing. What Jesus would say to John and have him write in the book of Revelation when speaking of the Laodicean church, he said, you're neither hot nor cold, and because of that, I will spew you out of my mouth. It's better to be all or nothing but being halfway doesn't cut it. So my admonition to you today is to be all in, to give Jesus everything in your life. Would you stand together? Would you lift your hands, your hearts, your voices to the Lord? And would you begin to talk to Jesus and ask him to work in your life? Jesus, we worship you. Jesus, we praise you. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy.